Hello, and welcome to the Lasting Impact Wellness Podcast, where together we explore ways to help you optimize your health and achieve sustainable well being. No one deserves to live an unhealthy life because they are overtasked, overstimulated, and overwhelmed. I'm your co host, Dr. Laura Hayes, and we'll be joined by Dr. Parker Hayes as we explore new perspectives and strategies rooted in self awareness, deep connections, and science based practices designed to create lasting impact for you and those around you. Please keep in mind this podcast is for the purpose of education, introspection, and community connection and should not be mistaken for medical advice. Be sure to subscribe and share with others. Let's be well together. Hello and welcome to Lasting Impact Wellness, the podcast that helps you optimize your health and well-being through science-based practices, practical knowledge, and honest discussions. I'm your host today, Dr. Parker Hayes. I'd like to start today by offering an earnest message of appreciation to our listeners. At the end of each episode, I thank you specifically for your time and your energy, two of the most valuable commodities we have. Laura and I have been humbled and frankly blown away by the positive response we've received to the podcast in just our first two short months. We have garnered large numbers of listeners both at home and in other countries. You've told us that we should believe in what we're doing, and thank you very much. We can further the network through which we can share and improve our well-being for our collective. Please help us in our quest to become one of the top health and wellness podcasts available today. Download episodes, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast highly. And most of all, think of others who could benefit the most from the information we present and share the podcast with them. In discussions I have with patients and clients and friends, we talk about how long we might want to live, how long we might be able to live. But almost always those discussions carry a disclaimer. Will I be all there? Will I be able to think? Will I be able to feel? The concept of neurodegenerative disorders, losing one's faculties to some degree, terrifies people more than almost any other aspect within aging. We will explore this topic of major neurodegenerative disorders in a two-part series of episodes. In part one today, we discuss neurodegenerative disorders in some detail, including the most common form of dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease. While, yes, neurodegenerative disease is devastating and is among the most feared possibilities we face as we age, take this from this two-part series. It is not the case that we can't do anything about it. From genetic risk to lifestyle and dietary factors and even to treatment. What we do matters. So let's get started. Today, I am very pleased to welcome an esteemed guest to the LIW podcast, Dr. Eric Ensrud. Dr. Ensrud is from Central Illinois and began his schooling at the Child Development Lab at the University of Illinois. He graduated from Champaign Central High School, received degrees in biology and Asian studies at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, then his MD from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. 
He went on and completed a novel combined residency program in neurology and physical medicine and rehabilitation at Harvard Medical School, as well as a fellowship in neuromuscular disease also at Harvard. He has held faculty positions since at the University of Texas, Harvard Medical School, Washington State University, the University of Oregon, Oregon Health Sciences University, and is currently a professor of neurology and physical medicine and rehabilitation at the University of Missouri, where he serves as the director of the ALS Association Center of Excellence and the Muscular Dystrophy Association Center. Dr. Ensrud is a renowned educator with over 500 invited local, national, and international grand rounds presentations and other academic talks, and has received numerous distinguished educator awards. He is a sought-after consultant and legal expert witness, most recently on a three-year project with the State of Oregon Medicaid program, Combating Fraud and Overutilization, as well as with the U.S. Federal Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality and the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. He is an invited member of multiple FDA panels evaluating drugs and medical devices for FDA approval, and he is a contributing author to the world's leading neuromuscular medicine textbook. He has also taught English in China, is a world traveler, and a fascinating character through and through. Dr. Eric Ensrud, welcome to the podcast. Well, hello, Parker. Thanks for having me this morning. I'm excited to be here and to have the chance to talk with you about some issues that are of concern to a lot of people. The main idea of our company, Lasting Impact Wellness, and thus this podcast is prevention and improving one's health and well-being, as opposed to just general medical information. Therefore, when we talk about things like neurodegenerative disorders, we need to place some emphasis on what they are, clearing up misconceptions and establishing common rhetoric and glossary. But we also will talk about them in terms of how can we prevent them? Is there any way to do so? How can we mitigate risk? And then is there treatment available? So I expect to learn a tremendous amount, as I always do in Dr. Ensrud's presence. And let's get started right away. Eric, if you would, can you give us a brief explanation of neurodegenerative diseases and their impact on individuals and society? So a neurodegenerative disease is a disease that involves a progressive loss of nerve cells or a progressive loss of function of a group of nerve cells. It's something that progresses over time. They really are different in many ways from other degenerative diseases because, you know, all, almost all other organ systems, they're interchangeable. Like we can put cadaver bone in someone for our, an orthopedic problem, or we can do a liver transplant or a heart transplant. We can do a skin graft, but our brains and nervous system, they really truly make us who we are as individuals and they're not interchangeable. So there's definitely a lot of weight that goes into our nervous system as an, as an organ system, particularly our brain. And what are some of the most common examples of neurodegenerative disease? Well, the most common would be Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. 
Alzheimer's is in the scope of nervous system disease, a pretty common disease. It's estimated that more than 6 million Americans of all ages have Alzheimer's and that about two thirds are age 75 and older, about one in nine people age 65 and older has Alzheimer's. So about two thirds of the persons with Alzheimer's are female. It's not entirely understood why that occurs, but it's likely a combination of factors, including sex chromosomes, hormones, brain structure, and even gender and life experiences. The next most common neurodegenerative disease would be Parkinson's disease. And there's about a million Americans living with Parkinson's disease. Recently, particularly in a paper from last year, it's been suggested that the incidence or arrival of new cases in the U.S. per year is about 90,000, and that's quite a bit higher than previous estimates. Interestingly, the sex ratio um, compared with Alzheimer's is opposite for Parkinson's disease. About two-thirds of the patients are male and about a third are female. Um, however, women have a higher mortality rate from Parkinson's disease and tend to have a faster progression of the disease once it starts. So perhaps 6 million Americans with Alzheimer's, mostly older, mostly women, about 1 million Americans with Parkinson's disease, mostly men. That's correct. Yeah. How much do we devote to something that is so prevalent and so insidiously damaging like neurodegenerative disease? Do we have an idea on the total cost devoted to the care of these individuals? Yes. We, you know, these are estimates, but there's a lot of attention paid to this and there's really a tremendous amount of cost associated with these diseases. Um, a recent estimate for Alzheimer's disease was $305 billion in costs for caring for people with Alzheimer's in 2020 and about $52 billion for Parkinson's disease. So those sound like gigantic numbers out of the reach of comprehension for most people. And without asking you to put yourself in a bind from an opinion standpoint, do you think that the devotion of resources is commensurate to the impact, especially compared to other diseases and how the research is funded? Yeah, well, that certainly, of course, depends on who you talk to. The researchers in the field never have enough money, but by any measure, the amount that we devote to this is pretty substantial and has been increasing. So based on a new law in December 2020, Alzheimer's research will be federally funded, just federally funded, not private funding, at greater than $3.7 billion per year. And from a personal opinion, that certainly seems warranted given the cause. And Parkinson's disease is currently funded by the National Institute of Health at more than $250 million per year. If you would, go ahead and tell us some other diseases just as a list that may fit into neurodegenerative disease, and we can see how many we can get through individually after that. Yeah, so some other diseases that people are aware of that are neurodegenerative diseases are ALS or amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and multiple sclerosis or MS. Well, let's dive in directly to Alzheimer's disease. As you mentioned, it may be the most common and the one that is also most prevalent 
in terms of public awareness. Tell me, if you would, what is Alzheimer's? We hear euphemistic names for it, old-timers disease. Sometimes people lump together senility, all forms of dementia, all forms of elders' infirmities sometimes get lumped under Alzheimer's. Tell us a little bit about what Alzheimer's really is, and a further discussion can ensue. Sure, sure. Well, if we back up just a little bit, dementia or that term, that's a general term for loss of memory, language, problem solving, and other thinking abilities that are importantly severe enough to interfere with daily life. And Alzheimer's is a type of dementia, and that's the most common cause of dementia. Senility, that term that's out there, that's a term that's been used for years to describe age-related cognitive decline, and it encompasses a range of cognitive or thinking changes that occur naturally as people grow older. I think it's important to realize we all kind of, you know, it's very apparent to us that we have derm or skin changes as we get older, that we have orthopedic or bone changes as we get older, but there's also natural change in the nervous system. And those changes can include some forgetfulness, slower processing speed, and some difficulty with complex tasks. But the difference with senility is it generally doesn't interfere with daily life. So the most common form of dementia, what is Alzheimer's? Well, it's a progressive disease. So it starts mild and tends to progress. So it begins with mild memory loss and can possibly lead to the loss of ability to carry on a conversation or even respond to the environment. It's quite complex, but involves these complex parts of the brain that control thought, memory, and language. And importantly, it can really seriously affect a person's ability to carry out you know, daily activities. And to be frank, scientists, neurologists, don't really fully understand yet what causes Alzheimer's disease. And it may be a common end pathway rather than just one disease. So it's not likely a single cause, but there are several factors that can affect each person differently. And the best known risk factor for Alzheimer's disease is age. And, you know, life expectancy has progressed significantly, say over the past 100 years. So it's become much more common with longer life expectancy. And most researchers believe that genetics can play a role in developing Alzheimer's disease, but genes don't equal destiny. So as we'll get into uh, today, a healthy lifestyle or making some lifestyle modifications can pretty significantly reduce your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. So how does one differentiate signs of aging from possible early signs of Alzheimer's. I was at a neighborhood get-together last night. I can't remember numerous people's names that looked right at me and told me their names. Tell me how one makes the differentiation between I'm getting older and I might have Alzheimer's. Yeah, so the real significant factor when Alzheimer's becomes a consideration is when you have memory loss that disrupts your daily life. Not that you can't, you know, remember someone's name who you haven't seen in a while or can't remember someone's name you were introduced to at a function or that sort of thing. Something that really is present and disrupts your, your daily life. I mean, I think it's important to point out that as we age, 
we do have more trouble or more delay retrieving long-term memory. And at one point, there was a thought that, oh, well, this is abnormal and this represents dysfunction of the nervous system. And there was some pretty groundbreaking research about 10 years ago that revealed that our memory system in our brain is actually subject to a lot of physical constants, chemical constants that are present in any system. So just say, for example, when we're 20 years old, we have a lot less experience to search through. So it may be much easier for us to remember something, remember a specific, like a name. And it, you can kind of think about that either in terms of a library or like a computer hard drive. When you're young, your library may just have a couple of bookcases, your memory library. And if you were to look for a specific bookcase, there's not much to look through. You'd find it quickly. When you're older, you may have 300 or 3000 bookcases and looking for that same book that you haven't, or that same name that you haven't thought of in 10, 15 years takes a lot more time. If you've ever had a computer and it's a brand new computer and you want to search the hard drive for a term, it'll go through the hard drive very quickly. If it's an old computer that you probably need to replace because the hard drive is full. If you go to the, you know, the search function and try and search through the hard drive, everyone's seen that that takes a lot longer time. So that's not dysfunctional. So it's important not to get too anxious about not being able to remember, you know, specific names or it, it's really, your brain is amazing. Sometimes it'll happen that you can't remember. You'll feel bad about it or a little anxious about it, or many people do. You'll totally forget about it. And then two days later, all of a sudden the name will pop up. So this whole time in your subconscious, your brain has been searching your large established memory and finding that it just takes time. So to move on from that, what are some possible signs of early Alzheimer's? So again, memory that disrupts daily life and significant challenges in planning or solving problems. And again, these are activities of daily life, like having trouble paying bills or cooking a recipe that you've used for years or know by heart, you know, difficulty completing familiar tasks at home, at work or at leisure, like forgetting when you're driving places, shopping, confusion with time or place. Having difficulty understanding images or space relations, like having difficulty with balance or judging distance, tripping over a lot of things, spilling or dropping things more often, struggling to find a word you're looking for, and not so much a specific name, but not being able to remember the word watch and saying that thing on your wrist that tells time, misplacing things frequently and losing the ability to retrace steps. These again, none of these are an absolute sign of Alzheimer's. They're just clues that something may be going on in that area, decreased or poor judgment, being a victim of a scam, paying less attention to hygiene, trouble taking care of a pet, withdrawal from work or social activities, and then importantly, changes in mood and personality, getting easily upset in common situations or becoming more fearful or suspicious. That's quite a list. And again, none of those being absolute. In fact, they could be something that might befall anyone for a, a sporadic or episodic event. But then 
perhaps be corrected later, as you said, conjuring up a name or something as your brain has been background searching for a couple of days versus having it profoundly affect you on a daily basis. Yeah. So profoundly affecting you on a daily basis is an important thing. And, you know, not to have a list that's alarming, but I mean, if multiple items that I discussed are occurring on a frequent basis. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't, I use something on my own keys, for example, it's called a tile. It's a little Bluetooth thing. And if I didn't have those, I would lose my keys probably every week, but I can hit a button on my phone and the keys will start beeping. <laughs> I certainly <laughs> share that sentiment. Although finishing your uh, metaphor, you certainly have a lot of bookcases to try to keep track of. Sure, sure. Well, many of us do. Yeah. Talk to me and us a little bit about vascular dementia and other forms of dementia, perhaps distinguishing them or contrasting them to Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that's a great question. So there are lots of different types of dementia and one is called vascular dementia and that's caused by reduced blood flow to the brain due to blood vessel damages or blockages. It can often occur after strokes or other cardiovascular problems. It can occur with atherosclerotic change in blood vessels. It can occur with diabetes that affects small blood vessels in the brain. There's a, a less common form of dementia called Lewy body dementia, and those are abnormal protein deposits that accumulate in the brain. And the thing that is a, a little bit different than that is that type of dementia involves problems thinking, but the level of alertness of a person goes up and down. And then oftentimes people with Lewy body dementia have visual hallucinations. They see things that aren't there. There's another type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, and that affects certain areas of the brain called the frontal and temporal lobes. And the unique feature of that is it often starts out with really profound changes in personality and behavior, and then only later uh, develops problems with language. So for example, somebody who's been very careful managing their money or funds suddenly starts becoming very careless with their money or, or takes off and does something personality-wise that was very atypical for their behavior over the rest of their life. There can be some dementia associated with some persons who have Parkinson's disease, so they can develop problems thinking over time. There's a pretty rare but devastating disorder called Huntington's disease, which is one of the rare conditions that's strictly inherited, and that causes certain nerve cells in the brain to break down over time and leads to pretty profound thinking problems and also motor problems or problems with movement. Then things that make it a little complicated, in many patients, you might have something called mixed dementia, where you've got more than one type of dementia, like a combination of Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. And then it's really important to note that other conditions like traumatic brain injury, infections, and even certain metabolic disorders can lead to dementia. Having a low vitamin B12 uh, level, for example, can lead to dementia. Having a problem with your thyroid function in dementia uh, can lead to dementia. And then very importantly, depression in people who are older is often under-recognized. It tends to be a lot less dramatic than in younger persons and a lot 
more silent and difficult to diagnose. So that's certainly something that needs to be looked at in the workup of someone who is felt to have dementia. So, wow, vascular dementia, Lewy body dementia, frontotemporal dementia, dementia associated with Parkinson's disease, mixed dementia, and then differentiating depression, medication side effects, other things that might present as dementia. They're not all Alzheimer's. At risk of jumping ahead and off the Alzheimer's discussion, which I uh, hope to come back to promptly, Huntington's disease, of course, has a specific gene mutation associated with it and is inherited and is an exception. With these other forms of dementia and Alzheimer's, do you think that eventually we are likely, from a mechanistic standpoint, to discover relatively common pathways en route to their development? Well, that's a great question and not to duck it, but it's really hard to say, you know, like our cognition or our thinking is, you know, one of the most complex things our body does. And my hope is that in the future, we'll be able to develop even more and more effective ways to prevent or reduce the risk of it. I think that's more likely to occur than we will be able to fix it once it's established or cure it once it's present. Does that make sense? Yeah. So at risk of leading the witness here, then do you think there are things that we could do now that might mitigate our risk of developing any of these things? Well, I'm glad you bring that up, Parker, because we absolutely can. And I would have to say that in 2023, as a neurologist, someone who spent decades working on neurologic problems, it's really important to point out to the listeners that we are able to do more ourselves to reduce our risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia than physicians or other medical providers are able to do for us. And I think there are persons who have dementia in their families, and I count myself as one of those who kind of get a sense of hopelessness that I'm going to develop dementia or concern or worry. I mean, there are frankly many, many people like that. And it's almost like it's something outside of my control. And I think a real important thing to point out is the locus of control and how it affects people. So if it's something's done to you, the locus of control is outside of you and you feel like you're, you know, subject to that and really can't affect it. If you bring the locus of control internally, you realize that you can do things that affect your risk or to affect the outcome. And in fact, the locus of control in preventing dementia and Alzheimer's is much more internal than external, that we all are able to do things ourselves that will have a much more significant effect than others are able to do to us, if that makes sense, including medical providers. That is a profound take-home statement, and I appreciate it very much. As an example, in Alzheimer's disease, there have been somewhere between advances in knowledge and breakthroughs in terms of genetic risk. And you mentioned earlier that genes are not destiny. 
but there may be genes associated with an increased risk for developing Alzheimer's later. Apoproteins 4, 3, 2, some that are promoted in the media by the development of famous people who have been identified as having them. That is not a sentence for Alzheimer's destiny. That's increasing risk. So an analogy that I use is if you bought a house that you knew was kind of near a floodplain, you may love the house and you'd take great care of it. You would enjoy living there, but you would watch the forecast. You would watch the creek level nearby. You might take steps to try to mitigate your risk. It wouldn't change your enjoyment of living in that house and making a family and making a successful life in that house. But being aware of risk, if there's some possibility that we can do something about it, is a smart thing to do. All right. So back to Alzheimer's, if we could, can you tell us briefly about, first of all, the mechanism perhaps at the amyloid or TA level without getting too far in the weeds? And have we actually experienced some breaking of the seal in terms of available treatment or not? Well, so there's been this longstanding theory that amyloid and tau, these are abnormal proteins accumulating in the brain, are the mechanism of Alzheimer's disease because they're seen in increased density and frequency in the brain of patients who have Alzheimer's. There's also been a lot of concern that maybe that's been barking up the wrong tree and has led to difficulties or the lack of effective treatments for Alzheimer's. So there's certainly a lot of controversy in the field and, you know, nothing is absolute, but I think mm -hmm. it's safe to say that there hasn't been in the past enough research funded in Alzheimer's, but there's also quite a bit of concern that there may be other mechanisms and that's, you know, it's quite complicated. There is a recent drug approved. Its predecessor was very controversial from a couple of years ago, but it's called lecanemab. It's an antibody that targets this accumulation of amyloid protein that's thought to be a major factor. And in a preliminary trial, the people who received this, all of whom only had mild Alzheimer's at the time of entry into their trial, showed about a 25% decline in a key measure of cognitive or thinking function and about a third slowing of a decline in a measure of daily living compared to a placebo group. But it's very unclear about how long lasting these effects might last. Now that might be an extra six months of being able to recognize the loved one's face of performing a valued activity. And that medication requires an IV infusion about every two weeks. And it's of concern that about one out of every eight patients treated with that medication showed brain swelling or brain edema. So in any case, it's always positive if something shows an effect and the preliminary data do show that effect, but few, if any, think this is the real effective treatment that's needed. And most people feel that further study and follow-up on that drug is needed. So I would bring it back to it's still not as effective as what we can do for ourselves. Mitigating risk in Alzheimer's and the discussion of that newly available treatment highlights a concept that I think I have to explain often to myself and to others, which is 
testing for drugs and their efficacy is a very nuanced and complex process. What we're talking about at this point is an infusion every two weeks of a drug for Alzheimer's. And it may slow some of the progression of Alzheimer's if given early in the disease, but it's much too early to tell what its widespread impact will be. Is that a fair statement? Yes, I think that's a very fair statement. Yes. Yeah. To me, it is important, however, that we're even talking about two words in sequence, and that's Alzheimer's and treatment. So we'll see how that goes, and perhaps we can visit it again. Let's pivot a bit to Parkinson's disease. Following a similar format, can you tell us what exactly is Parkinson's disease and talk to us a little bit about its prevalence and global impact? Yeah, so Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder of progressive dysfunction of nerve cells in the brain. And that is unique in that it affects predominantly cells that produce a chemical called dopamine that's very important, has many effects in the brain, but in a specific area of the brain called the substantia nigra, those neurons. So again, there's about a million people in the U.S. with a Parkinson's disease. It's a pretty consensus estimate. And then there's about, uh, by more recent estimates, about 90,000 people in the U.S. develop it each year. It comes on very quietly, silently. It's, you know, these are different diseases. They're not like strokes where you get this very sudden deficit and you know something's wrong or a heart attack where you have crushing chest pain and you run to an emergency department. So often, you know, it's not uncommon for me to see a patient, maybe even for something else, and notice that they have mild Parkinson's disease. So it, it comes on very slowly and it causes symptoms. There are positive symptoms of Parkinson's disease, which doesn't mean that they're good to have, but they cause excessive movement. And usually those are quite asymmetric and one specific common symptom in Parkinson's disease, it doesn't mean everyone has it, is a resting tremor, a tremor that, not a tremor that occurs with movement, but just with uh, the hand at rest, usually in the hand, although it can be in the leg. There are also negative symptoms of Parkinson's disease, and those are decreased movements. And we call that in medicine, bradykinesia or decreased movement. You might have reduced facial expression. So our current understanding of the causes and its risk factors. Let's pivot perhaps to that. Yeah. So about 15% of Parkinson's patients have a family history of Parkinson's disease, which means of course that 85% of people with Parkinson's disease do not have a family history. So researchers have identified some specific genetic changes that can cause Parkinson's disease, but these are uncommon except in rare cases. So for example, there's a change in a gene called LRR2. That's the most common genetic change linked to Parkinson's disease. And people who carry that may develop Parkinson's later in life, but even people who carry that have a 25% chance of not developing Parkinson's by the age of 80. So when we talk about things like precision medicine, we'd probably be more accurately talking about genetic risk rather than you have the gene. In most cases, you will 
it'd be a misunderstanding in most cases to suggest that, you know, the diseases are 100% determined by genetics. So what else can cause Parkinson's? This sort of common end pathway in a very complex system of the brain, it's called the extrapyramidal system or basal ganglion. If you've seen a diagram or schematic of it, it's quite difficult to follow. It's really a miracle, some of the things our brain do. But there are lots of theories that involve things like oxidative damage. One thing that's definitely been shown to be a risk for developing Parkinson's disease is toxins. And by toxins, I mean more specifically things like some insecticides and herbicides like Agent Orange and possibly accelerated aging. So there are many different potential risk factors. So in that discussion, of course, I hear we can change some things on the front end. We can do more things for ourselves, perhaps, than doctors can do for us later, especially when it comes to the development of neurodegenerative disease. Absolutely. Yeah. So what are some of the major areas of prevention research and effort currently? So there's a lot of emphasis being placed on physical activity or exercise. Like the exercise Tai Chi Chuan has been shown to help very much with Parkinson's disease. Any type of exercise gets the blood pumping and helps the brain tissue build up protective mechanisms. And exercise that gets the heart rate up also helps neurons in the brain to both maintain old connections and form new connections. So the brain works better longer. There have been some more recent treatments, deep brain stimulation, which is really like uh, a pacemaker. It's a similar unit to a pacemaker that goes into electrode to uh, focus an electrical signal on an area of the brain to reduce excessive a tremor, for example, or abnormal movement of a limb. More recently, a neurosurgeon who I know, uh, Jeff Elias at University of Virginia has done a lot of work to develop actually using ultrasound and multiple ultrasound beams that intersect. It's called focused ultrasound. That is quite an effective treatment for a tremor, which in Parkinson's occurs on one side of, of the body. And that's been a big advance because you no longer have to breach the skull and, you know, go into the brain with an electrode the way you do with deep brain stimulation. So that certainly holds a lot of promise. So specific stimuli to neurons in the brain through ultrasound, some of these things really have promise. I often surprise patients when I tell them that one of the main things you can do to help prevent dementia is exercise. Absolutely. There is just so much evidence on this. And there was a real profound study published in 2010, Parker, and, and I think it can apply to dementia, specifically Parkinson's disease and really any neurodegenerative disease. In this study, it was published in a leading journal in neurology called Neurology. It showed in persons with an average age of almost 80, 78, they were all 65 or older. So, so walking about 2,500 steps a day was associated over nine years and maintaining a much higher volume of a certain area of the brain called gray matter. And gray matter is where the brain cells themselves are, not the pathways in the brain. And so maintaining that gray matter volume with physical activity reduced the risk of dementia by half. 
50%. And so, you know, how do you put that into place? Do you need to walk a mile and a half a day? Well, the great thing about that is you don't need to. That, that was walking 2,500 steps in total. So you could consider a step counter. I can tell you, I put a step counter on my dad and tried to encourage him to walk that much. And I was accused of being, you know, a helicopter kid. And some very interesting things came up. I think an important thing, you know, to kind of point out and you're well aware of is when we talk about exercise, we think too often, I think of Jane Fonda or P90X or Tybo. And, you know, exercise can be just walking. Exercise can be doing aerobic or, you know, aquatic exercise in a swimming pool. Exercise can be doing, you know, there are even exercise routines in chairs. So what I found out by putting that on my dad is occasionally I'd be like, wow, you had a great day or yesterday was great. What happened? And it turned out that he was getting a ton of steps when he went into superstores, like a super target or a Myers, you know, or something like that, or a Home Depot. And to be honest, normally I didn't really like going into a huge store with my dad because he'd get lost. I'd lose him. <laughs> he wouldn't have a cell phone signal. And I became a huge advocate for that. And if you think about it, you know, there are level, even floors throughout these stores. They're climate controlled. You know, it's cool in the summer and warm in the winter. It's not raining. And then you've got great support from the, the shopping cart. So in an elderly person, like having them go to a store like that frequently is an easy way to have them get safe exercise. And 2,500 steps is not a ton, but it makes a profound difference over just sitting on the couch or having the groceries delivered. So this is really a central concept in lasting impact wellness is what is functional fitness? What is exercise? Too many people get preoccupied with the 20 minutes they spend doing something titled exercise, perhaps in a gym, instead of the other 23 hours and 40 minutes of their day, which could constitute much more movement and likely have even more effect. Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with exercising for 20 minutes a day. And if you started there, that's a wonderful place to begin. However, as an example, centenarians who live in Sardinia, they don't have a gym. They have their stone steps and their garden and their lives that keep them moving throughout their waking hours. And it's the movement, it's the complex composition of cognitive input with motor manifestations that constitutes exercise. Um, I heard a neurologist, Dr. Kellyanne Neotis, talking on another podcast recently about the difference between exercising per se and dancing and how much more cognitive input it took to coordinate choreography and musical input with the movement and what a great brain exercise that was because of it. Yeah. Uh, so it's wonderful to hear you talk about whether you're a helicopter kid or not, encouraging people who are older to move consistently under safe conditions. Yeah. I have to say that, you know, unfortunately there is this kind of sense that old age 
courage and treachery can be youth and enthusiasm every time. And one day my dad got like 8,000 steps. And the next day I was like, what the hell happened? And wow, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. And he goes, oh, my friends at the coffee shop put your Fitbit on a dog. <laughs> yes, I know. There's a fine line between treachery and wisdom. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a good pause point for this great discussion on neurodegenerative disease with my esteemed guest, Dr. Eric Ensrud. Please, please do not miss part two of this series, which follows as we continue our conversation discussing multiple sclerosis and ALS, but in particular, the preventative or lifestyle factors that influence our risk, progression, and outcome. My thanks, even now at halftime, goes to Dr. Ensrud and to all the listeners for your time and your energy. Please visit us on the web at lastingimpactwellness.com and join with us to further our collective health and well-being. If you would like to help the well-being of others, please download this podcast, subscribe to it, and share it with someone. We believe everyone knows at least one person who could benefit. Help us spread the word. I'm Dr. Parker Hayes. Let's be well together.